All right. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today's guest is Bill Schnee. He's a producer and uh, audio engineer. He's had a long and very successful career in the music biz, uh, working with everyone from Dire Straits to Whitney Houston, uh, Boz Skaggs, the Pointer Sisters, uh, all of the Beatles. And of course, he worked with Steely Dan. He was uh, an engineer on a little album called Asia, uh, which he won a Grammy for. Uh, and he also won a Grammy for Gaucho, uh, although he didn't work on that. And we uh, talk about why that is in our conversation. Uh, he recently wrote a book called Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation uh, about his work with some of the biggest artists uh, of the 70s and 80s, uh, some of the ones I mentioned, uh, and a lot more. I uh, read the book and found it very entertaining uh, and enlightening and uh, highly recommend it. Uh, and it was interesting in setting up our conversation, uh, his people actually reached out to me. I uh, got a call uh, a few weeks ago from his agent. Uh, you know, I don't even know how he got my number, but, you know, he said that Bill wanted to come on the pod. And, you know, the focus of the podcast is really to talk more to fans, you know, rather than people who actually worked or played with uh, Steely Dan. But, you know, I'm more than happy to make uh, an exception if uh, someone who worked with uh, Donald and Walter expresses interest in coming on. Uh, especially someone who not only worked on Asia, but won a Grammy for it. So thanks to Bill for uh, taking some time to talk to me. And uh, I do recommend his book. It's called Chairman at the Board. I think there's uh, an entire chapter on his work with Steely Dan and a whole lot more. Before I share the episode, uh, update on the switch over to FM pods. Uh, everything is pretty much set up there. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you know, the feed is uh, coming from there and not Buzzsprout. Uh, I have it all set up on uh, FM Pods, so go check it out. It's fmpods.com. Uh, if you go to podcasts and scroll down to Gacho Amigos, you'll see all the episodes I've done are already there. Uh, still working out a few kinks here and there. I, you know, just did the transfer over the weekend. Uh, and soon there will be some premium content to share with you. Uh, you'll see on the uh, site, there's a subscription option. And as soon as I get that already, I'll have more details on what that entails. But for now, I'm still just kind of getting everything set up. Uh, but feel free to check it out. It's all at fmpods.com. We'll be off next week. Uh, I'm on vacation, but back the week after that. And without further ado, this is my conversation with audio engineer, Bill Schnee, author of Chairman at the Board. Enjoy. And a couple of my very good friends, Jeff Picaro and Michael Omardian, uh, had worked on a couple of previous albums to Asia and uh, had told me about their shall we call it maniacal ways of getting what they wanted the search for perfection really jeff Percaro told you that before you even worked with them yeah based on his experiences on uh i guess katie light or pretzel yeah, yeah. uh-huh how did you know jeff one of my friends told me uh, have you heard this jeff Picaro? i said no and he said you're gonna like him and uh i finally did hear him and uh, and I don't remember I don't remember the first time how, but the first time we worked together, um, you know when I I, I try I tried I'm a I'm actually a keyboard player, but I'm a, a wannabe drummer, and uh, I really believe in the drums for pop music being the backbone, and so I worked really hard on drum sounds. Uh, when I got in the business, there it was it was a different world on drum sounds, and. Uh, so uh, I think I made pretty good friends with most drummers. Most drummers are very happy with me, with, with what they hear. And uh, Jeff was definitely one of them. And from there, we, we became very good friends. You know, I've been very fortunate to work with many, many of the best drummers out there. Most, I would think. And um, yeah. so there's a lot of good ones. 
Uh, for me, drums are about feel. I talk a little bit about that in the book. Um, and I, I just always thought that Jeff had an incredible feel. A little bit like Keltner, who's Jim Keltner, who's one of his was one of Jeff's idols, um, with the uh, laid back backbeat, where where the backbeat is teeny bit behind the beat, not right on it perfectly. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with being on it perfectly. John Robinson is an example of someone that it's he, he plays some like a machine before there were machines. But yeah, but Jeff. Uh, you know, as those movements of the four appendages, as the brain tells those four appendages where they belong in the in the course of the beats, um, that's what I would define as feel because they uh, uh, they're when they're not spot on that that there's something to that. Uh, I I've told another story about an artist who shall name nameless. Uh, that came in with, I'd mixed a couple of albums for him, and he came in with with this new drummer on the scene, and uh, Teddy Campbell. And Teddy plays with incredible feel. And when I opened up the Pro Tools session, there must have been 500 edits on the drum track, where basically he or someone had gone in, and even though he played with a click, Still, his feel, as I've just described, was, and I mean slight, movement in it. And somebody had gone in and taken all of that out so that he was perfect. Every kick was on the grid, on, on the beat, every snare, everything was just perfect. Why did you hire him? You should have hired me. I could have played <laughs> that if you're going to do and correct it like that. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, so it was really his feel that, that you were attracted to. So um, I think in the book I read uh, in 1977, you got a call from uh, Gary Katz saying that he wanted you to work on uh, the next Steely Dan album. Right. He, he asked if I'd be interested, and uh, I said, absolutely. And uh, he then said, we're going to have a revolving door of drummers, <laughs> so you're going to be getting a new drum sound every two to three days. And I said, that's okay. It'll be fine. Um, and he uh, he said, where would you like to do it? And I had my favorite studio at that time was a little studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles called Producers Workshop. Um, and I'm not sure if they ever went and looked at the studio. I, I never heard about it if they did. Uh, but... They just ultimately Gary gave me the dates and we we booked in, and um, it was a funky little studio, but it had an outstanding sounding console, a homemade console. Uh, I came to find out that homemade consoles are the best, almost always because the or two things: one, the people that took that kind of time usually had done their homework and figuring out what what kind of amplifiers would sound good. And two, they're incredibly simple. That then would be several years later uh, when I built my studio in 1980 would be the um, the, the plan for it. Uh, so it was a very, very fun little spot uh, that, that had great sound. It was right behind the mastering lab, which was Doug Sachs's mastering studio. Uh, Doug was one of the best mastering engineers uh, ever, ever, period, uh, as acknowledged by most of the best mastering engineers. Uh, he really he really uh, paved the way for so many more. And uh, yeah, so it was, and he ended up becoming my, I call him my graduate, uh, uh, what am I, graduate teacher. And um, I learned a tremendous amount from him. Were you excited to work with Steely Dan uh, because of their track record of having, you know, kind of high quality sounding albums? Was that a factor or were you just a fan of the music? Fan of the music. Yeah. Fan of the music. And a little, you know, when I got off the phone, a little bit um, concerned about what I mentioned earlier that <laughs> uh, that they take, uh, you know, can take a lot of time doing the perfection thing. 
And I'm not a, an extremely patient person. I kind of tend to, I do grin and bear it in the studio, sometimes yeah. have to, to keep things going properly. But I was a little concerned about that. But to my surprise, when we got into it and got started, it was anything but. Uh, really? I think that that album was completely unique uh, um, from anything before it uh, and definitely after it. Um, even there's um, Gaucho. And in that, this was the first album that was all studio musicians. Uh, obviously, they had used some studio musicians on a couple of previous albums. But this was all studio. Nobody, n uh, neither one of them played anything on the sessions. It was a, I, Walter did a little, I'm told, a little bit of overdubbing afterwards. But, you know, uh, the tracking sessions, they had Larry Carlton in there. And these guys had done, they did a piano bass demo of every song. Okay. And it, it, you know, in almost every case, it had the exact feel of where things were going to be. So much so that on more than one occasion, when they played the demo, one of the studio musicians would say, why don't you just overdub the drums on this? It feels <laughs> great. Yeah. And they said, no, no, we'll get it better. Yeah. And did we? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But we went and did them all. To that point, funny enough, after after Asia, Gary called me to do a session for the movie FM. Right. And they came in with their piano-based demo and uh, played it for everybody. And somebody said, why don't you just overdub the drums on this? And they said, no, no, we'll get it better. <laughs> And we got a track, and as memory serves me, it was a pretty good track, but they, they went away to do their overdubbing and um, evidently weren't as happy with it, and they ended up overdubbing Jeff Beccaro on the demo. Oh, they did. Interesting. Yeah, I wish I could hear some of those demos because I just would like to hear those songs, you know, completely stripped down to their kind of... Because I think the... Uh, the demo for Black Cow has actually leaked out. It's out on the internet. And I've heard that. And it's actually beautiful just to hear Donald, you know, doing a kind of solo piano rendition of that song. And then to hear that and then compare it to the, you know, highly produced uh, version that we hear on Asia is really interesting as a fan. But uh, yeah, sure. In the corner of my eye, I saw you in Rudis. You were very It was a crying disgrace They saw your face On the counter By your keys Was a book of numbers And your remedies One of these Surely will screen out the sorrow Where are you tomorrow? I can't cry why you run around? Watch you run around. Break away just when it seems so clear that it's over now. Drink your big black cow and get out of here. I, I have a feeling that we, you know, we may never hear those. <laughs> I don't know if Donald wants that out there. No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Especially Deacon Blues. I, I would love to hear, you know, just Donald, uh, Donald Piano, Deacon Blues. But I'll, I'll say this. Um, yeah. You know, uh, second engineers will do bad things when everyone's gone home. They will take they will take things out of the closet, out of the vault and maybe make copies for themselves. And what's quite interesting uh, I, I, you know, I, I never thought to keep any of that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, I had cassettes of everything. Uh, you know, every day when we'd finish a session on Asia, uh, I, when I popped it in the car on the way home, I'd go, "My gosh, what is this? It's it's kind of jazzy, but it's not jazz, and it's a little bluesy sometimes. It certainly isn't blues, and maybe even a touch poppy." And as I've said before, I I finally I don't know what it is, but I know it's incredible. Uh, so as you were 
as you were making the album, you could sense that this was something special. Oh, yeah, absolutely. On a musical level, completely, because all the lyrics weren't done. Some of them had some lyrics, you know, whatever, whatever. But uh, a lot of the times they, they weren't done and it was just the music. Well, anyway, as it turns out, about 15 years ago or so, uh, I happened to uh, meet with the one of the second engineers that was on Asia. And he tells me that he had made copies of the basic tracks. And I said, oh, really? really? Well, uh, I would love to have those, please. <laughs> he said, sure. And he sends them to me. And then I called or texted him back and said, I, I don't get it. Why didn't you take all of them? You know, he, he only took a few, which okay. I, I don't quite understand, but whatever. So you have those? Huh? You have those? Oh, yeah. What's on them? What does it sound like? I don't remember. Oh, well, what's on them is the way the track sounded. And what's the, the the great thing is this. So they they when they finished when we finished the tracking, yeah, they came to me and they said, Okay, we're gonna go off and do overdubs. It'll be a few months. Uh, and then when we're when we're done with that, we want you to mix it. And I said, you know, guys, I, I'm sorry, but I don't I don't think that would work. And they said, What do you mean? I said, Well, I have a very different style of mixing than you guys. Back then, especially, it would be different today, but back then, especially, this is before uh, mixing computers. You know, you, you did all the mixing yourself, and there were a lot of different ways of mixing that people did. I mixed for a performance. You know, I, when I, I, I've said it many times, you know, the, the console became my instrument when okay. I, I had worked early on with so many incredible keyboard players that I basically got intimidated, and my first engineering and then producing career took off and so the, uh, the the console became my instrument and i mixed for a performance uh you know meaning hit hit play on the song and let it go and and just start manipulating as it, as it went there were marks on the board about where the the where it would begin but after that it was just up to the right brain to say turn that up turn that down you know right. whatever and they said, well, you'll try, won't you? And I said, sure, of course we'll try. And I think it was almost six months later, they had one song finished, and it was Josie. <laughs> and although it really wasn't finished, uh, it, it had something on it like a harmonica or something that obviously they ended up taking off and replacing, whatever. But um, we went in to a studio, and I, I got the mix up where I thought it was good, and they came in. And and it was it was exactly as I expected. It was the only way to the simplest way to describe it, I guess, is wow, that feels really good. Now, uh, in the first chorus, why don't you try this? Oh, okay. And see, they were thinking section by section. Right. And and so I tried that in the first chorus, I, not realizing what was going on. I made another mix, and they said, "Oh, good. Now try it in the second chorus, but only halfway." That kind of anyway, it kept. Now, now, you know, in other words, then A, and A do this, and B do that. Well, maybe less of B and more of A, and, you know, back, around, around, around. And, you know, in about three or four hours, uh, w which is usually back then all it took me to mix a song, because I mix pretty darn quick, uh, I was lost. <laughs> I was absolutely lost, and they could tell it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I just said, guys, you got a phenomenal album here. It's going to be great. I wish I was a different guy and I could, I could do this, but, you know, best of luck with it. Like, what was your impression of Donald and Walter, you know, just in terms of working with them or kind of a first impression? You know, when I said my concern about what was going to happen because of the what I'd heard from Jeff and Michael yeah. is this was nothing like that. All studio musicians, yes, and they were basically like union sessions. I mean, we started at two and we never went late into the night. And every Larry Carlton had done a, a chord sheet takedown uh, from the demos that they had done. 
And uh, my memory is that we stuck pretty darn close to those. We didn't, I mean, sections might move or, or something or get shortened or doubled or anything like that. But the basic the, the basic crux uh, harmonically was kept the same on everything. And it was also interesting. I don't know about the previous sessions exactly, but it was a no drug zone. Now, I don't know, again, I don't know what happened when they went to overdubs, but the tracking dates were no drug zone. And uh, Was that unusual for the time? Um, well, from what I understand, it was unusual for them. <laughs> um, so I don't know. You know, and I know, I mean, uh, obviously, you probably heard, I mean, uh, Walter especially had a, you know, developed a problem from yeah. time to time with that stuff. So I didn't know if it was, if it was Donald's call on that to, you know, to make things go smooth or what, but, but it was a no drug zone in any event. And um, very light, very, the sessions were light, there was no heaviness, there was no digging in and all that stuff. If it didn't work, you know. A lot of laughter, you know, well, no, let's try that then, you know, kind of thing. Just, it couldn't have been easier. Could not no. have been easier. That's and interesting because you hear about Gaucho. Yeah. It's a bit of a different <laughs> yeah. story. Yeah. And, and on Gaucho, of course, uh, now they, they, you know, in the search for the perfect drums, whatever that means, uh, they, they tried all kinds of things. The craziest one to me was, I'll never forget, uh, Jeff had been gone for uh, 10 days or something, two weeks, and came by my studio. And I said, how did it go? And he said, it, it was grueling. They had me play the same song three, three or four times. I can't remember. Three or four times, each time with a different rhythm section, only looking to get my drum track. So they figured that if I played with different rhythm sections, I was going to play different enough that it might mean something. And then they would find, get the drums. Uh, they could listen to just the drum tracks and and pick the best one from that. Was this on the uh, song Gaucho? I have no idea what song yeah. it was. But you didn't work but on Gaucho, right? Not a bit. And yet um, you still won a Grammy for it, though. Yeah, right? I'll come to that. Okay. Um, um, so... So uh, he, um, so that's what they did, and whatever. Now, obviously, you <clears throat> you've done enough research to know that all of this craziness led Roger Nichols to invent Wendell, the first real drum computer. Uh, you know where they could they could take the different drummers' sounds and put them in the computer. Uh, you know, and uh, have the computer play it. So they got their their perfection, um, but the the story of me on Gaucho, which I th it's a great one and incredibly timely right now, <laughs> because uh, you obviously know all about the second arrangement. Yes. Uh, so this, if any of your fans don't know, this is the song that Donald came into the studio one day, and the second engineer reported to him that he had accidentally erased three-fourths of the song on the multi-track and i'm told that donald didn't react he just turned around and walked out yeah um and then later uh in, in an interview said that that was the worst day of his recording career <laughs> oh god so so that's that yes um they tried to re-record it could never get it as good as or at least they thought as good as what they had in the first one and finally gave up. Uh, in so doing, they went back to my Asia tracking dates and pulled out another song, another track from Steve Gadd that wasn't used, and that became Third World Man. Right, it was Were You Blind That Day, originally. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think, and I, yeah. And uh, that had lyrics when I had it, and, and I silly me i like the other lyrics better but that's i'm with you i'm with you really? and actually yeah i think those are better and actually it was interesting because simpsy's upload and she was also a guest on the show so i've talked all about second arrangement um after the second arrangement there's actually a recording of were you blind that day that i hadn't heard it was a little bit different than the other demo and i, I really enjoyed it so smoky sunday 
So anyway, that that is the reason that right. I got credit on Gaucho because I cut that track. Right. In fact, when we went up when we went up at the Grammys uh, to collect a Grammy, <laughs> I asked Elliot on the as we were walking up, "Can I can I talk first? And he said, "Sure, go ahead." And so I got up to the mic and I turned around and said, "Guys, this is silly. I'm just along for the ride on this one." And Elliot pops in and says, "Are you kidding? If we didn't have that song, we'd still be making that record." <laughs> yeah because they would have had to come up with a whole another song i guess exactly so uh, yeah. here we here's here's the interesting postscript on all of that mm -hmm. uh five months ago six months ago something uh a keyboard player in nashville named scott sheriff uh who uh who ha has a uh, steely dan sound alike i mean a cover band um decided to do were you blind i mean um second arrangement yeah decided to do it so he got some of his friends it was done in a typical fashion where the track is emailed to everybody and they put their parts on it nobody no two people were in the room together and they put michael omarty in uh, he asked michael to play acoustic piano scott played the Rhodes kind of sound yeah and he copied he copied in great part the the basic elements for sure of the the one that's online and this is definitely before the uh the the re-release from the dat um so uh when it was done uh the, he asked michael do you think bill would mix it and he, michael and i are very good friends and he said here's his phone number give him a call so he called me up and said told me what he had done and i said sure let me hear it and he sent it over and i listened and i went whoa this is really good. I, you know, I think that's one of the best, Donald's best songs. And I no agree. question would have been a single. <laughs> um, and so uh, I mixed it. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, then uh, they called me back after I sent it in to them and said, yeah, we love it. We love it. We're going to do a, a video with the squares, you know, where there's a square here and a square yeah. there. Mine Those became here. very popular during the uh, pandemic. Yeah. So he said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll all fake it and make it happen. <laughs> so they, uh, they called, uh, he called me when he was ready. They were going to do Michael Amardian in his, at his house faking the piano. So I said, can you come over and fake the mix? And I said, sure. Uh, funny enough, it's, it's on a, an old, old kind of, I call them digital mice, uh, you know, my mouse with faders uh, for a computer, uh, something I would never mix on, but that's okay. okay. And they filmed all of us pretending to do the the thing so <laughs> yeah, they put right it together there. and they sent it to me like i said this is, now it's about five months ago or something and uh three days later after they sent me the thing uh i got a email from a friend who said there was a an interview yesterday uh with donald and he said some nice things about you so here's the link to it so i okay so i listened to the thing and he gets down and the interviewer uh, who knows me has asked me to be interviewed and I said yes but he has, still hasn't called uh, the interviewer said something about Bill Schnee and Donald said oh how is Bill and he said he's doing great and then Donald said Bill was the best recording engineer we ever used wow which begets the question why wasn't I on Nightfly why wasn't I on Gaucho why wasn't <laughs> I on anything after that and I, I don't understand it I've had that before from people yeah. I've absolutely heard uh, two other artists that that either were one time or something and one of them I actually called and uh, he was saying he was mastering with Doug Sachs and said Bill was the most musical engineer I ever worked with and when Doug told me that I called the guy up and said did you really say that yeah I did well then why don't you use me I'm just curious <laughs> well you and know what I, I wouldn't take it personally because think about all the geniuses and brilliant people that those guys worked with over the years that they you know moved on from as well you know I think they just like to, you know, Donald likes to mix things up. He likes to keep things interesting and work with different people and, and see what comes out. So um, anyway, take the uh, compliment continue, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I took it. Believe me, I teared up when I watched it. <laughs> yeah. And and the, and the first time or two I told the story, I teared up. Anyway, 
and then got mad. Uh, but seriously, um, so <laughs> so then um, once I read that, saw that, and the thing was so fresh because, like I said, they sent me the video the day two days before. I went, okay, I, I, Donald has to hear this. So uh, I I didn't have a current email on him. I got it from someone. And uh, from his drummer, who lives in Nashville, that they're using now, Keith Kerlock. Um, and I wrote him and I said, I know Keith told you I moved to Nashville area five years ago. And I, I've been so impressed with the musicianship here and not just country. I said a bunch of the guys got together just for fun and did uh, the second arrangement. I'm going to send it to you. I hope it doesn't bring back too many bad memories. And I sent it off to him. Okay. Uh, I, I use a, a transfer service where I see when they download it. And I saw that he downloaded it fairly quickly. And I'm waiting to hear from him, waiting, waiting, nothing. So a couple hours later, I'm watching a movie. And all of a sudden, it hits me. Wait a minute. We can't do anything with that because it was there's no license. It was never released. So I picked up my phone and emailed him again. And I said basically that. And he wrote back immediately and said, it's great to hear from you. The song sounds good. Whoever did it, go ahead and release it. And so that's wonderful. So for whatever reasons that I don't know, the guys that put it together took several months to, to finally go for the license. Yeah. We still would have to do it. And uh, the long story short is the publisher wouldn't give it. And no, no reason given. And I have to tell you, that was right after uh, a week or two after, just a week or two ago, uh, after the... Uh, the SimC release? Yeah, so you think that may have been a factor? It, I I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, would, would come on, let's think about it. They were perfectionists. That record wasn't done and it wasn't mixed. I talked to Elliot, and he thinks he did that mix, so it's a pretty good mix, uh, rough mix, but it was a rough mix, and the record wasn't done. So it's like, you know, so I don't know. So I, do you I, think I, that that song should not have been released? Is that what you're saying? I, I'm That she shouldn't have released it? I, yeah. I, I think what, what should have happened, what should have happened is made sure that Donald was okay with it. Now, and I don't know that he wasn't, uh, I, I wrote him another email after they they were turned down and it was, I'm not pushing him in any way. I don't want to push him, but it was right. enough that I just mentioned to him that they didn't get the license. Maybe you've changed your mind. And this time he didn't write me back, but the next morning, the next morning I got an email from Irving Azov asking for my phone number. And he said, I'll call you. And he didn't call, <clears throat> excuse me, but his, <laughs> but his secretary emailed instead and okay. said, uh, no, license. Yeah, I think, well, also, so the SimC upload, you know, that made news. I mean, it was the music blogs and things were covering it. Um, oh, yeah, it spread like wildfire. It spread quickly. And I, you know, I may have had a small hand in that because I posted it. And uh, my post was actually taken down last week. And so were the, the uploads. Simpsons upload. So those are no oh, they longer. Have been? They have been taken down. Yeah. And I think you just filled in the part of the story that was missing, which is that I would imagine Irving Azoff, uh, you know, you know, no, no, it was Donald's decision though. You think it was Donald? Oh yeah. It was his decision. Why do you think Donald did that? Because I think it's understood that that song isn't finished. You know, it's kind of more of an artifact of what happened, you know, during those gaucho sections. Well, look, he thought it was a, one of his best songs. He was crushed when it got erased and he couldn't finish it. Put that in there into a creative mind. And now, you know, instead of, you know, and now here it comes in its unfinished, unmixed form. I mean, it seems very logical to me. <laughs> so you're on, you, you agree with Donald. You think that the. Well, again, that's, I'm not quoting Donald. I'm just, <laughs> I'm giving you're getting idea. in his. Yeah, you're getting in the mindset of, of how Donald probably feels about the situation. Yeah, I mean, I can empathize with that. You know, I guess as a fan, I'm biased in the other direction, which is it's been 42 years. We've waited so long to hear this, you know, mythical song. And then finally, Simpsy, you know, she held on to the tape for all those years and then she took the care to, you know, upload the song. And 
you know, the fans were excited just to hear it. I think there's an understanding that it's not the actual finished thing, but if Donald doesn't want that out there, you know, I guess he has the the last word because I saw Universal going through and, and taking down everything. Like it's it's got it's the first time anything I've ever posted has been taken down was when I when I put up you know the Simsy version. So, well, that's interesting because I haven't yeah. checked in a while, but the uh, the version that I mixed that these guys did here, uh, they 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 said they're only going to put it on YouTube, and I wrote back and said, wait a minute, YouTube pays the least of any streaming service they pay the very least but they pay and what what you know how can that be you know how why isn't that just as bad so uh he said that you know that the the only uh the recourse is to take it down so i better check and see maybe the the one i did has been taken down too i think it's still up i think because it's not you know the actual gaucho sessions with donald version because it's more of a cover or you know you know, it's its own take on it. I, I think it's probably, I don't think they're well, going to. But for the same reason, it, yeah. it, it's a song without a license. So they have every, yeah. every, every right and, and the ability to say, get it off of there now. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But it seems like, because uh, there was a, a brief time when, you know, Simpsy was just putting stuff out there and, and it was, it was up there. And then about a week ago, it started, the takedown started. So, so maybe, you know, Donald's, you know, putting his foot down on this stuff but anyway you know there's another there's another aspect yeah. to this too yeah which is uh and i you know maybe you know something about it i don't uh, other than the word on the street some time ago uh while roger was still alive was that he had done something that they found very untoward and that their relation it, it damaged their relationship severely do you there's know a lot of, about that i do i know well i know what's been I know two sources. I read the book Reeling in the Years by Brian Sweet, which is kind of the unofficial biography. And I talked to Simpsy. We had a talk. You know, we, we, we hashed it out. And basically, you know, the Nichols family take is that Donald and Walter, halfway through Everything Must Go, we just decided we don't want to work with Roger anymore after he had been their engineer for, every, you know, all the years and just let him, fired him and never gave a reason stopped calling him, completely cut off contact from him, and Roger never knew why. And apparently, Simpsy and, I'm blanking on the mother, uh, Roger's wife's name, but apparently Roger was crushed by this. And even when he you know, got sick in 2011 and he had to crowdfund the hospital bills, never heard from Donald Walter. The family never heard from them after he passed. They didn't go to his funeral. They never called, nothing. So. I don't know what was so terrible about what Roger did. There's obviously some animosity between Donald and the Nichols. Everything you said about what happened, but uh, uh, and and them cutting him off like that, yeah, uh, is what I heard. But it, he he did something he shouldn't have done. Uh, come on, I mean, you know, they did. They they stuck with him through thick and thin, and he had done so much, you know, everything with him. It, I'm I'm pretty sure there was something that shouldn't have happened that happened. But what could be so terrible that you would just literally not even go to his funeral or follow up with the family? I just, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems weird. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, on the other hand, it doesn't make yeah. sense that this, <laughs> they, they would do that for no reason. Come yeah. on. Yeah. No, I know. It's weird. I mean, I understand them saying that, but <laughs> they had to do something. Even if he said, you know, Raka, oh, really? You're out of here. I mean, you know, even if it was something stupid, whatever, yeah. but something happened. Who knows? And my guess is it wasn't something stupid, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too involved in the the drama of the Steely Dan stuff. I'm I'm more just, you know, here for, you know, celebrating the, the work and, and the the stories and stuff. But um yeah, let's let's shift gears a little bit and just uh I kind of want to hear your impressions of uh some of the session musicians that you worked with on Asia. Like um Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey, or Steve Gadd. I know you talk about Steve Gadd in your book. Yeah, that, that's my favorite story because, uh, you know, because that was my first time to work with Steve and um, phenomenal. Well, they were all phenomenal drummers. Come on. Um, but um, I was very excited because of uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Paul Simon hit that had him playing on it. That was right. The first time I heard his name, because I, I heard that groove and I went, 
who played that? And, uh, and so I was very excited to work with him. And we had him, he came in for two days, only two days. And, and we cut four tracks in two days, just moving right along. But at the end of the first day, I uh, called Richard Perry, the great record producer that I did a lot of work with. And I said, just as a friend, I called him and said, you know, Richard, Steve Gadd? Yes. I said, I, I just cut two tracks with him with Steely Dan. He is a monster. And he said, really? Do you think I could have a session with him? And I said, well, he's leaving the day after tomorrow. So I doubt it. But we don't start until two. Let me call Gary Katz and see what he says. So I called Gary and said, Richard would love to do a session in the morning. And Gary was a huge fan of Richard as well he should be. And he's also very knowledgeable about Richard's ways. Richard was another one that would not necessarily shoot for perfection as, as much as options, but it, it usually took him hours to get a track with a band. He would tend to beat them up a little bit. Yep. Which is what I expected with Steely Dan. But like I said, and, and witness, we cut four tracks in two days with Steve Gadd. So anyway, uh, he said, Gary said, all right, but you got to stop at one o'clock. If we don't start at two, the boys are going to kill me. <laughs> I said, I promise you at one o'clock, I'll turn the monitor off. And he said, uh, okay. So I called Richard back and said, okay, uh, you got to do it here because I've got a drum sound I really like. I'm not going to, there's no time to move his drums anyway. And Gary says, it's okay. So uh, the next morning, nine o'clock before our 10 o'clock start, he showed up uh, with uh, this uh, very outgoing little Englishman named Leo Sayer. And they, we put up the song and, and Steve started playing it, and the, the track came together incredibly quick. And people are always asking, do you know when a song is going to be a hit? I said, more often than not, no. But there are have been a few times, and this was one of them. Yeah. Uh, when I heard the his falsetto opening on the first verse, uh, it grabbed my attention, and, and then the chorus... feel like dancing which went on to become a number one record a huge hit yeah. and what's almost more amazing than that that adds to it is that we got it in two hours and 35 minutes which wow only it's only amazing because of richard perry yeah um like i said that normally took hours so and also like richard always pushing he uh, said can we do another song i said richard we got 25 minutes we can't get a track in 25 minutes he said can we try? Let's just try. I said, okay. So he had another chord chart, another song, and they put it out there. And the song was called How Much Love. And we got it. We did go five minutes over. Uh, and I, in fact, when we I, we had the track, I didn't even play it back. I wouldn't even play it back. I said, you got it. And, and we did. And so uh, on that Leo Sayer, Endless Flight album, the first single was You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, which went to number one. Uh, the second single was When I Need You, which I think also went to number one. And the third single was How Much Love, the other track that we cut with Gad. So we cut two hits that morning, and I recorded Asia and another song that afternoon and evening. That was a good day in the studio. What was the other song? Do you remember? I don't. But Steve did the Asia uh, take. It was like one or two takes, right? Two takes. Yeah, it was it was the longest rehearsal. Um, I was talking to Michael about that, Omardian. It was the longest rehearsal of any of the songs uh, because it was, and it was the longest chart. I mean, it, it, you know, it was like uh, maybe three music stands or something. Very long chart, but uh, but it was the most rehearsal to get it right. And then when we got it, it was boom. And uh, but didn't you hear you that? Sorry, didn't you hear that Donald and Walter at first didn't want Steve Gadd on the track? Was well, they didn't. 
at the end of the first day, when we before I called Richard, when I was walking out, um, I heard him say something about, you know, not really like him. Like, what? He said, what? I said, Steve Gadd, you didn't like him? Oh, no, no, he's a, he's a lovely guy, but I ju just, you know, his playing. It's, I said, what's wrong with his playing? <laughs> I said, well, you know, we like a drummer like Jeff or Keltner where the backbeat is, you know, just kind of relaxed. And, you know, Steve's kind of right on the beat. I said, you know what, guys? I, I agree. That's my favorite, too. But listen to what he played, you know, and that was the first day. I pretty, I, I don't know. I'd like, I'd like to say I'm pretty sure where you blind that day uh, was on the first day. Oh, it was? Sure. Okay. But, I mean, four tracks in one day. I mean, that, I, I guarantee I mean, that's, that's a record in lots of people's books. Uh, and four really good tracks, let alone three, what we'll call them hits, you know, yep. come on. And, uh, and no, I don't remember if it was take one or two. I do, you know, and, and I've never found out. I never uh, found out if you've done a lot more research into them. Uh, if did they edit between the two takes? Do you know? I think they did. Well, I know they did for Wayne Shorter's solo. I don't know if they did for Steve Gadd's. And they may no. not have. Maybe they just because the interesting thing is it's just such a unique play. I mean, his playing on that is totally unlike anything on that album or anything else in the Steely Dan catalog. And it kind of is what makes that song special in a lot of ways is is the drums. Uh, yeah, just... I, I've always thought I, I just know that we had two two great takes and one of them had click sticks and uh, and um, and I can't remember. Michael can't remember. And I know Gad can't um, uh, remember what uh, which take it was one or two, but they were they were both good. And as as I remember, you know, I mean, if, if we're going to call that uh a modernish jazz kind of thing that's right. the jazziest thing on the record for sure uh you know in, in that jazz vein you know they they feel the same only different it's definitely performance yeah out of him especially obviously and there's that accidental stick hit which they kept in and actually when people cover asia live like i've seen it on youtube some of these cover bands they do the stick hit live like they try to <laughs> which is really funny that they're actually mimicking what was a, a complete accident so um i also read somewhere that uh a funny story that steve gadd had completely forgotten that he uh played on asia and that he was working on another session when uh walter was listening back to i think it was walter and gary katz were listening back to asia after it was done and uh gary or walter was like hey you know steve gadd's down the hall we should bring him in here so he can listen to it and they got Steve Gadd and they played him the track. And Steve Gadd listens to it and he goes, Yeah, yeah, it's really great. Who's playing the Who's drums the drummer? on it? <laughs> I like, heard that story. Motherfucker. <laughs> I heard that story. So fun. You had an interesting uh uh, section in your book about Donald didn't like his own vocals. Yeah. First, first time there was a rough vocal on something and uh, he came in and, um, and, you know, I'm playing it back with the vocal and he says, turn my vocal down. And I didn't think it was very loud. So I, I turned it down. So now it was in the track a little too much, but he was wanting to hear the track and I get it. And so when it was over, I said, um, do you not like your voice? He said, no, I hate it. It's a necessary evil. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, it's an awfully good evil. Yeah. Yeah. His voice. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I love his voice. I think it's, it makes everything click somehow the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, just... it, it's, it, it's definitely different. Absolutely different. Yeah. Unique, you know, but on Gaucho, it got even weirder. If you if you just yeah. kind of hone in on on just the sort of performance of it, it's it's he's doing all kinds of strange things with his voice. But I I love it. I'm actually it was interesting because uh, in your book you talk about thinking that Gaucho was not as good as Asia. But I'm I guess my feeling I'm actually a bigger fan of Gaucho than Asia. I think it's their wow. best album. Yeah. Um, I, th I think because I love the and it's nothing to do with the sound or the the music. It's the lyrical universe of it. I think is really attractive to me. I, I love um, 
just the kind of the characters and the, the kind of the world of it. But in terms of the the sonic quality, you know, they're they're both. Oh, they're both great. Come on, they're both. Yeah. You know, fabulous. yeah. No, I've I've done a lot of interviews for the book, and uh, you're not the first person that yeah. thinks that Gaucho is the better record. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like when it came out, you know, it was the reaction to it was a little bit more mixed than Asia. Asia was kind of an, you know, overwhelming hit. You know, it was one of the biggest albums of the year. Um, were you surprised to see it take off the way it did? Because it's a little bit of an unusual album. That it was a top three album of the year. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised. That's, I mean, like I said, when I knew that they had something very, very different, and and way ahead of its time musically. I mean, yep. that's what I, I was just totally taken with it, and I, I kind of, and I was wondering because it's so different than their previous albums. You know, uh, how is it, how will this be received? It's, you know, will will some of their fans be turned off by it, kind of thing? Um, and indeed, uh, maybe some of them were, but they picked up a heck of a lot more new fans with it. Uh, so I would have to say I was, in that sense, I was kind of surprised, but delighted nonetheless. Yeah. Would you say it's your favorite thing that you worked on? I will never say that. <laughs> too many. It's up. Too, I've been very blessed, and I have <laughs> I've worked on way too many outstanding records. I'll say this, it definitely gets the most attention of everything I've ever done. It does still, really. Interesting. Interesting.